It's always a privilege to be back with you uh, again as we are working our way through a, uh, Lord willing, a four-week uh, series, a four-lesson series, uh, looking a little bit about God's purposes and God's plans. Sort of the thinking behind that is, in our culture and in any culture, we don't get a lot of direction as to where things are going or why things are the way they are. And the Bible is uniquely uh, given to us in a way that uh, gives us a beginning that we looked at last week together in Genesis 1, where everything came from, and ultimately a little bit of what God is doing in his plan, which will culminate in uh, three more weeks uh, through our study with the very end of when Christ returns. And so my hope is our time in God's word and looking at some of what's going on helps us to make sense of what we see in our world and as we wonder where things are going. In some ways it should be a reminder of God's sovereignty, that he is in control and that he holds all things in his hands and that includes our our families and various situations we find ourselves in with our immediate and extended families. That includes our nation. It includes our purposes for why we are here. And so uh, my hope is that as we uh, look at some of these selected texts uh, across, in this case, uh, this morning is still the Old Testament, and then our next two weeks will be in the New Testament, uh, that we will see that God has a plan that supersedes Uh, all that um, uh, we see going around us and that God is in control of what he is doing and that there is a purpose behind it all. And uh, ultimately, I hope that we can see that that purpose is a glorious purpose and that includes all of us and and, uh, the purpose of why we are here and what we are to be doing. So that is our hope. It's a tall hope. Um, But nonetheless, uh, it's a matter of looking at a variety of scriptures where we can see God acting and uh, make some sense of the continuity of what's going on. We began last week, and I'll review just briefly in case either you weren't here or just as a reminder, um, but God begins his word with the creation of all things. Um, Just by fact of doing that, he is introducing himself as one who is beyond creation, who existed before creation. And so he is able to speak all things into creation. We look briefly at Genesis 1, and uh, we see God speaking and things uh, coming into existence. Um, Genesis 1 takes a unique turn in verses 26 and 27 where God creates something uh, in his own image, in his own likeness, and that is humanity, male and female. And we begin to see the seeds of what's going to be a pattern of God creating diversity, in this case male and female, and calling for unity. And there's going to be a play between the diversity that God creates and then the unity that he requires. Unity in that all are made in the image of God, and yet there's a diversity, there is a difference between maleness and femaleness, men and women. There are differences designed to come together in one and to represent God's image. And so we began to see that God has a concern, if you will, for his image as he creates man and woman. The first thing, he gives them a command and he says, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And what we begin to see is that God is concerned that his image, that his image bearers 
are representing him around his creation. So while he created all the mountains and lakes and oceans and rivers, the animals and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and so on, he desires his image bearers, male and female, man and woman, people to fill the earth. And this is his command. If you remember the story, there is a tendency for uh, mankind to not fill the earth, to not be fruitful and multiply. And a good illustration of that is the Tower of Babel, where rather than multiplying and, and going out, the idea is, hey, let's all stay together. Let's build a name for ourselves. We'll build a, build, build a tall tower. And, and they have this great plan as to what to do. And so God inserts more diversity. In the case of the Tower of Babel, he inserts languages. And these different language groups then kind of force people to, if you can't understand the person you're working with, there's a temptation at some point to no longer work with them. And people begin to expand and, and, and span out because they speak different languages. And so again, the languages are a creation from God. It creates diversity. And that diversity, in that diversity of languages, God calls for Unity, And so in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, we see the diversity of male and female. In Genesis 10, we see the, the development of the nations. You'll remember that God floods the earth with Noah in Genesis 6. And so everyone, in a sense, is a descendant of Noah's three children and uh, his three sons. And yet from those three sons, we begin to have nations. The many nations are, of course, Diversity. There's many of them. And yet then there's a call for those nations to be worshiping God and to represent him well as image bearers. So again, you see diversity and you see unity. Diversity and unity. And we ended last week, um, and I'm quite impressed that in about three minutes we could do what took us 45 last week. But nonetheless, in uh, Genesis 12, we begin to get a little glimpse as to where the story is going. Before Genesis 12... We just kind of see sin and God's reaction to sin, and then sort of more sin and God's reaction to more sin, and then sin again and God's reaction again. It's very hard to know, well, what's ever going to happen to this story? And then we see that God reveals a little bit of the direction that he's going to go. So let's start there this morning. If you have your Bibles, make your way to Genesis chapter 12. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, and we'll just uh, briefly review uh, that key passage and sort of work on from, from there, Genesis 12. So God is speaking, and he picks a man, and I'm going to come back a little later into the particular man that he picks. Here he'll be named Abram, eventually he'll be renamed Abraham. His wife Sarai uh, will later be renamed Sarah. And uh, God will take this couple and he's going to give them his plan. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your father's country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. 
And so he has this couple, and I'm just going to call them Abraham and Sarah. That's ultimately going to be their names. And Abraham and Sarah are, have been uniquely chosen to go from the land of their fathers into this new land that God will show them. And they're going to become a great nation. They're going to have many offspring. And, and it's just interesting that the very things that the people were trying to accomplish on their own, one chapter back in Genesis 11, they wanted to build a tower in Genesis 11, the people and make a great name for themselves and now God is, is, was condemning them at Babel and now is offering that to Abraham and to Sarah. I will make you into a, to a, a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so it's interesting that it's sort of we get the picture that greatness is something that God gives, man can't take it. When man takes it in Genesis 11, uh, let's make our name great. Let's build this great tower that's a defilement of God's commands. But God can give it, and in this case, he's going to give it to Abraham and to his wife, Sarah. I want you to see at the bottom of verse 3, or at the end of verse 3, um, and I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. So there is the relationship between this new nation, has no name yet, but this new nation that will be created in all other nations, nations that bless this new nation, they will be blessed. Nations that curse this new nation, they will be cursed. And then uh, verse 3 ends, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Depending on your translation, it might read all the nations on earth, all the families of earth, were the three primarily, primary English translations. But the idea is all people groups. So whether we're talking about peoples, families, nations, all of them will be blessed through you. So God has a plan. He's going to take this couple. We don't know yet, but as it turns out, interesting enough, this is a couple that hasn't been able to have children. And so it's kind of a unique pick to create this great nation from a couple that isn't actually able to have offspring, and yet that's God's plan. And so that's where we get sort of the sense of where this is going and, um, <clears throat> and, and what's about to happen. Well, if you kind of, if we want to just briefly summarize the rest of the book of Genesis, the rest of the book of Genesis is about Abraham, ultimately his son through the lineage, which will be Isaac. Uh, ultimately, Isaac's son, es or sons, Esau and Jacob, but Esau is not part of God's covenantal plan, and so it focuses on Jacob and not on Esau. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob is going to get renamed, and he's going to take on the name Israel, and Israel is then going to become the name of that nation. So it's not for two more generations till we actually get a name for the nation. And again, it's really hard to call a nation of you know, about five, six people as a nation, and that just seems a little generous at this point. Uh, but nonetheless, that is where the, the name will come. And, and after Jacob, and of course, if you remember, Jacob ends up loving one wife, but sort of having uh, two wives and two concubines and, and having children from all of them, ultimately, uh, 12 sons in total, and those will become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And the story will primarily focus on son number 11 uh, being Joseph. And so really Genesis, from Genesis 12 on is about the story of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and, and then primarily a focus on 
Joseph. And by the time we get to Joseph, we've built this little family clan up to 70 people. And if you remember, they're living in the land of Canaan, which will eventually be Israel. Uh, But there's famine in the land, and the brothers have sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. God has uh, been with Joseph through his uh, jail uh, term there and so on, all the different things that happened to him. Eventually, he becomes sort of a prime minister figure uh, who, with the dream of the Pharaoh, has recognized that God is going to send seven years of bounty and then seven years of famine. And so Joseph is in charge of preparing Egypt, the largest nation in the world, the strongest nation in the world, preparing them for famine. Of course, famine hits, and ultimately Joseph's brothers, in the providence of God, uh, come to Egypt to get food to bring it back to Canaan and end up meeting their brother. And uh, ultimately, by the end of the book of Genesis, they move to Egypt, where God has prepared a place for them. And, and so I say all of that because it's interesting. By the end of Genesis, we have 70 people. The text even gives us the number. It's 70 people moved to Egypt. And so 70, still hard to call 70 a nation, but we're well on our way. And then God will really be silent for the next 400 years. God doesn't give us a lot of details about uh, this clan of 70 folks living in Egypt. We pick up the story some 400 years later, and the, the story as it gets picked up, they're in Egypt, and now they have grown. They've been blessed incredibly over 400 years, and now they're a nation. So so we really see that the Bible is mostly silent on nation building for for Israel. The last time we see them is as 70, uh, moving from Canaan to to Egypt. And then we turn the page from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. We've we've skipped some 400 years, and, and now God has blessed them exceedingly well, and they are a nation. The story of the Exodus, which is the next thing, God delivering his people from Egypt and now back to the land that he had ultimately promised them, that story becomes not just a a good story in the Bible. There's lots of good stories in the Bible, but it becomes a reference point for the work of God. The book of Exodus and the story of the Exodus are going to essentially get referred to in every book after Exodus. God will constantly remind his people, remember how I delivered you from, Israel, uh, from Egypt. Remember how I brought you to the promised land. Remember how I defeated the Egyptians. And so there's a constant call to remember, and this, the, the command isn't remember Daniel in the lion's den, great story of God's provision. The call isn't remember Noah and the ark. The call is always to remember the Exodus. And so we're going to look a little bit at the Exodus to see if we can get a sense of God's purposes and God's plans. And the reason we're looking at the book of Exodus for a little bit, or or the story of the Exodus, is simply because it becomes the primary reference point for the work of God. What's God like? He's like a God who can divide the Red Sea and let his people march through on dry land and then take the world's most powerful army, let them march into the Red Sea, and then close it. 
And, and so the idea is that there is a major emphasis on God's work in the Exodus. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that because it seems to be foundational to understanding the Old Testament. And even the New Testament will point back to this constant, remember how I delivered you from Egypt. Remember how I delivered you from slavery. Remember how I brought you to your own land. Remember how I made you into your own people. And all these references back to the Exodus. So, uh, of course, I'm going to be very selective in the verses that we look at in the book of Exodus, but hopefully in my selection, you're going to start to see this pattern. And that's really the goal, is to, uh, is to see the pattern. So again, just briefly from where we've come, we've come from creation. We've seen that, that male and female, man and woman, are uniquely created to bear God's image, and that there is a mandate for God's image bearers to fill the earth. God wants his image everywhere. And what we see is the nature of sin is constantly a violation of that. Man doesn't want to fill the earth. Uh, Cain, if you remember, after he committed his uh, sin in murdering his brother, he didn't want to wander. He didn't want to go uh, any old place. He feared uh, wandering would equal death, and God promised to preserve him from that. There is a tendency to do the opposite of what God wants. And so what God wants is the earth to people to be uh, f- uh, multiply and fill the earth, and people are like, no, let's stay together, let's build our cities, and, and, and let's not spread out. And so God is in the business of seeing his image bearers and ultimately his image to fill the earth. And it's interesting that he doesn't use necessarily special people. Uh, Just on our way to Exodus, I'm going to grab just one verse from Joshua. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. Joshua 24, uh, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. Joshua is recounting the story of Abraham and how God chose him and just happens to mention Abraham, his brother Nahor, his dad Terah, they're idol worshippers. And so God is taking an idol worshiper from another country and bringing him in and fashioning his own people out of someone who doesn't seem to be uniquely qualified. Right? Abraham doesn't seem to be somehow special and set apart. Abraham's an idol worshiper along with his dad and his brother. And yet God takes him and brings him to the promised land and ultimately blesses him with the son Isaac. And, and through Isaac, uh, ultimately, uh, eventually a nation would be formed. So God is taking, if you will, regular people or sinful people and yet using them for his purposes. And this will be important as we move forward. So we're going to skip through the book of Exodus at a variety of verses. Feel free to turn to each passage or just to jot them down. There's a, an outline in your, uh, in your handout this morning. And, and you can just jot them down because we're going to go from verse to verse. And if that's, I don't want to frustrate anyone, that can sometimes as we're you know, jumping and, and we'll do several jumps. And so do what's best for you. Either keep jumping with me or simply note the verses. But what we want to do is pick up the themes as we go. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. 
This is really the way this story starts. If you remember, Joseph was the one who saved Egypt from seven years of famine. And the way Joseph did that is he interpreted Pharaoh's dream when Pharaoh had the dream of seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And then Pharaoh assigned Joseph to be the one to make the plans during these seven good years. Excuse me, make plans for the seven bad years, and Joseph did. So Joseph is a foreigner in Egypt, right? He's not from Egypt, but he's a foreigner who was the savior of the land, in a sense. But that story is 400 years old by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, and a new king comes along, and this new king knows nothing about how Joseph was the savior of the land. And so that is sort of the ominous beginning that this king does not know Joseph. Just as a side note, so you understand, most of Egyptian pharaohs were not Egyptian. Uh, Egypt tended to take their leaders from foreigners. And so it was very easy to understand how an Egyptian leader could not know the history of Egypt. And that may sound funny. We don't, in America, elect non-Americans, right? In America, we elect Americans to the other. There's all sorts of rules about that and so on. But if you think about European history, much of European history during the last five, six, seven, eight hundred years, a family called the Habsburgs were primarily the leaders of England, of France, of Scotland, of Prussia, of Spain, of Portugal, one family, and so someone would be born and raised in Spain and would become the king of England and have to learn English as a second or even third language. It is quite common in world history to have leaders for nations that are not from that nation. I know we don't do it in this nation, but just so you know, even in our European history, you see that all over the place. So in Egypt, that was the practice, that it was primarily ruling tribes from other places uh, came to be the pharaohs, and now a pharaoh has come to Egypt, and he knows nothing about the story of Joseph. Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, you remember that God raises up Moses, Moses has this unique sort of preservation, the pharaoh is concerned that all these Hebrews, which is how they're known in the book of Exodus, all these Hebrews are becoming so big and so strong that, that, that all of a sudden they're going to overrun Egypt. And so not knowing how the Hebrews saved Egypt, that's a 400-year-old story, he didn't know that story, and so he thinks we've really got to watch out because these Hebrews have been so become so strong. And so we can see the blessing of God on his people uh, in that he blessed them and, and prospered them uh, as they lived in Egypt. And so God raises up Moses and Pharaoh had begun to kill all the baby boys, uh, all the baby Hebrew boys as a way to, to, to get rid of uh, uh, the future growth of the Hebrews. And yet Moses' life was preserved. You remember the story in the basket in the Nile River and so on. And eventually Moses uh, comes to lead his people uh, under God's command to, to, to tell Pharaoh to let them go. Uh, let them go worship God in, in the desert is, is ultimately how it begins. And so when Moses first confronts Pharaoh with God's message, and the message is let my people go, when, God, when Moses first confronts Pharaoh, Exodus 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I, do not let, I will not let Israel go. 
So in, in Exodus 1, our problem is we don't know the story of Joseph. In Exodus 5, our problem is we don't even know the Lord. And so we don't know Joseph. We don't know how Joseph preserved Egypt 400 years ago. Uh, we don't know the Lord, and we're not going to let you go. That's kind of Pharaoh's thinking. Exodus 6, 6 and 7, God is speaking through Moses, and he says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give him, I will give to you. I'm sorry. I will give it to you as a, as a possession, for I am the Lord. I just want to highlight the fact that as God is about to deliver His people from Egypt, that He is saying, "I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God." And so God is going to use the events of the Exodus to reveal himself to his people, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So it sounds great unless you've read ahead. Because if you've read ahead, you realize God's approach is a little unorthodox, right? His approach for getting his people out of Egypt to the promised land is going to be to turn the Nile River to blood, to have a plethora of frogs for a period of time. This is God's approach, and you'll know that I'm God. To one night, one morning, wake up and the sun doesn't shine. Pure darkness. To have disease infect the cattle. Grasshoppers. God will be revealing himself through grasshoppers. Okay? There's ten plagues. In other words, what God is saying is these ten plagues will help you know who, who I am. And this becomes the theme. The Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph and his story. The Pharaoh doesn't know the Lord. As a matter of fact, the Hebrews don't really know their own God. And so God says in Exodus 6 to his people, I'm going to get you out of Egypt and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And he's going to use 10 plagues to do it. Exodus 7 verses 3 to 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and though I multiply many miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with the mighty acts of judgment. Those are the 10 10 plagues. And I will bring out my divisions and my people, the Israelites. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord uh, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So we've got a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. We've got a Pharaoh who doesn't know the Lord. And now the Lord says, the way I act my people will know me in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he says, the way I will act, I'm sorry, in chapter 7, he says, the way I will act, the Egyptians will know me. The entire Exodus account is about learning who God is. Pharaoh needs to know. The Hebrews need to know. The Egyptians need to know. And so God is in the business of making himself known. He just uses a really particular or peculiar way in the book of Exodus in these 10 plagues as he reveals his power not only to send the frogs, but to command the frogs to leave. Not only to turn the Nile to blood, but then at his command, turn the blood back to water. And so God is showing his power, and if you'll allow me, for everyone, for the Pharaoh, 
for the Hebrews and for the Egyptians. Exodus 14, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will not, uh, so that they will go in after them. That is, they will go in after the Hebrews after I've divided the Red Sea and the Hebrews have walked through, but then I'm going to harden the Egyptians' hearts. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and horsemen. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but Pharaoh Pharaoh and, and the Egyptian army is the strongest military force in the world. And in one day they walk into the Red Sea and they never walk out. Can, can you imagine Egypt is left without a single army, without any people uh, in their army? And, and so God is showing that I will gain glory through this act. And, and can you imagine, I, I mean, the United States would be a pretty good example. Imagine tomorrow we would wake up and have no military, none, none whatsoever. I mean, you sort of, I mean, we don't even know how to think about that. How, how would that even be possible? But Egypt in one day had the strongest military force in the, in, in, in the world that day, and the next day had none, had no pharaoh, had no chariots, no soldiers, no horses, no spears, no army. And God, notice what it says, uh, chapter uh, Exodus 14, verse 17, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through the chariots and the horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, through his chariots and horsemen. So do you see what's going on? The entire acts of the Exodus aren't merely great Sunday school stories, and they are great Sunday school stories. My young daughters constantly come home from Sunday school with little papers about grasshoppers and frogs and darkness and boils and, 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 and all those things that happen in those ten plagues. But God wants to make himself known, and this is so important to see the theme that's going on. From creation, we are uniquely created. It was already said this morning that we need to look at people as image bearers, and that's precisely right. And I would even add something slightly more just to expand it. We need to look at the uniquenesses of people, all the different shapes and sizes, male and female, languages, nationalities, races, skin colors, and all those things represent God's beauty of his diversity because all of it represents his image. All of it does. Maleness represents our God. Femaleness represents our God. English represents our God. Spanish, Arabic, Russian, you name the language, represents our God. Skin colors, dark and light, eye colors, hair color and length and shape and so on, represent our God. And so from the beginning, we are a unique part of God's good creation. His creation is very good, but we are unique and we bear his image. And he seems from the very beginning set out that his image be spread that his image be everywhere. And as that begins to be accomplished, we have a huge problem. We have image bearers running around, and they don't know their image bearers. Does that make sense? We have people who don't know their God. We have a Pharaoh listed here in the book of Exodus who didn't know Joseph and who didn't know the Lord, and as a result was not going to let the people go. And God says, I want to introduce you to myself. 
I, I want you to know a little bit about me. And so one morning they wake up and the Nile is blood. Well, how on earth? The Egyptians were worshippers of the Nile River. The Nile River was the source of life for Egypt. That's where they got all their drinking water. That's also how they irrigated their crops. It's true today that the Nile River is still the, the source of life for Egypt. But one morning they wake up and it's all blood. And God says, uh, yeah, I, I did that. I, I, I'm the one who, who made it into, into blood. That's, that's who I am. And I'm the one who will turn it back at my command. And, and so there is a thrust, not merely for image bearers to fill the earth, but certainly for image bearers to fill the earth, but then a thrust that image bearers know whose image they bear. Isn't that our prayer for our children and for our grandchildren? That they know whose image they bear? Isn't that the reason we support missionaries that serve in all sorts of different places? That people come to know whose image they bear? And so this becomes the theme. I want to read you, you don't need to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 4 will be a reflection back on the Exodus as to what God was doing, just to show you that this theme is common. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 32, ask now about the former days, long before your time, this is about 40 years after the Exodus. From the day God created man on earth, ask from uh, one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like this ever been heard of? Have, uh, excuse me, has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Referring to God speaking when they went to Mount Sinai. Um, Has any God ever tried to make himself for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? See the reference to Egypt? What did God do? Mighty deeds. Well, what were they? Nile turns to blood. That's a mighty deed. Frogs fill the earth. That's a mighty deed. Frogs unfill the earth. That too is a mighty deed, probably more thankful than the first one is when they left than when they came. That's the idea. Like the things the Lord your God did for you uh, in Egypt before your very eyes, you were shown these things so that, here's the purpose, you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. So that no one gets confused when I take you out of Egypt and bring you to your own land. The last thing we want is Egyptian God worshippers. They worship the sun. God turned off the sun. They worship the Nile. God turned it to blood. They worship the meat from cattle. God gave their cattle disease and many of them were wiped out. Why? So that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. It tells us why. Deuteronomy chapter 4 tells us why the events of Exodus. So that we would know. And so to start to see this theme, this is the theme that is going to run all the way through the Old Testament. And next week, if you're here, I'm going to show you it runs squarely through the center of Jesus' ministry. So that people will know their God. They will know in whose image they are made. They will have a concern. Who's they? And I'm going to show you from Jesus' ministry, it's all people 
not just the Jews. And the Jews are going to struggle with that in the New Testament times of the time of Jesus. That the others, what they call Gentiles, that they matter as well. But they've always mattered. Genesis 12 verse 3, God says to Abraham, through you all nations or all peoples or all the families of the earth will be blessed. One more illustration and we'll close. I take this illustration from the end of the Old Testament, from the time of the prophets. If you remember the story, God delivers them from Egypt, brings them right to the promised land. They don't trust God to deliver them into the promised land, because the promised land is filled with walled cities. They didn't have walled cities in Egypt, so that's a new one. And the people were very big, very tall, and so they were scared, and so they didn't trust God. And so for 40 years, that untrusting generation wandered in the desert until they had all died away. And then God asked the children of that generation, will you trust me to deliver deliver them to land? And I'm not even sure they trusted God. I think they were just tired of sand. And so they go, sure, I mean, take us anywhere, we trust you. Uh, we, we, we were born and raised in the sand, we've never had an address, we've never had business cards, we'll, we'll, t- take us somewhere. And so they trust God, and under Joshua's hand, they get to be in that land. And God had warned them, they say, once you get in the land, and once you settle in the land, you're going to start looking at the nations around you. And when you look at the nations around you, you're going to eventually say, give us a king. Everyone else gets a king. We want a king. And God warns them, once you ask for the king, here's what's going to happen. And a king is going to take more than you think they're going to take. And they're going to use up your best resources. And they're not going to end up being what you think they will be. Nonetheless, of course, the people ask for the king. And you remember the story, Saul's the first king, and he starts off well, and then things kind of go sour there. And Excuse me. Eventually, the kingdom is taken from Saul and given to a new family, uh, this man David. And David also starts off very well, but his personal life and his family life go uh, go south after his sin with Bathsheba and the scene that Uriah is murdered and and so on, and and really doesn't end well. Uh, And and then uh, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, he begins, and his kingdom too starts quite well. And and as you know, he he marries his foreign policy very very unique. I often wonder what it would be like to have someone with King Solomon's foreign policy today, simply when the reporters would ask, you know, how are you going to handle uh, the relationship with Russia? And then they would look into the camera and they would say, well, my plan is to uh, uh, marry the daughter of the president of Russia. That's my plan. And, and, And that's how I will do. Okay, well, what are you thinking about ISIS? Well, I'm, I'm going to find the general. Hopefully he has a daughter and I'll be marrying her as well. And that, that'll be my plan. All right. And so in Iran, uh, same plan, through marriage, make them family. And, 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 this is, and so that was Solomon's plan. And of course, as unique as it was, it was destructive. As he married the nations of the earth and was corrupted by them and no longer became a God worshiper. And so then, of course, through the Old Testament, we move from a kingdom of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon to a divided kingdom after Solomon, it breaks in half. North and south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And God raises up prophets to speak to the kings and to speak to the peoples about their sinfulness and how they have wandered from God. We pick up the story briefly in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. 
beginning in verse 9. Isaiah 43, verse 9. All of the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of the gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove that they were right, so that others might hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you might know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, not some other foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am the God. And the passage goes on, and what Isaiah is saying as he's speaking the word of the Lord is a reminder to Israel in front of the nations. Remember how it starts. Uh, Verse 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. And so in front of all the nations, God wants to be known as I am the only God. Who's God's concern in the time of the divided kingdom? The nations. All nations. Israel always thinks it's always about them, but they are only to be a light to the nations. What's at stake? The nations. People. Image bearers. Other languages and race and skin color. They're all made in the image of God. And so through Isaiah, jump to Isaiah 45. We'll pick up the story there. Verse 1, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia, and, to, and whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go out before you, and I will level the mountains, and I will break down the gates of bronze, and I will cut through the bars of iron, and I will give you hidden treasures, riches, riches stored in secret places so that you might know that I am the Lord. So God said to Cyrus, king of Persia. The prophets are full of that. God speaking to Israel, God speaking to Judah, God speaking to Persia. God speaking to, listen this one, this, you don't even t- turn there, uh, Ezekiel chapter 5, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says, you have been unruly, speaking to Judah, his people, Judah, you have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, you have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. You hear what, I, uh, what Ezekiel is saying? You are worse than the Canaanites. You're worse than the Hittites. You're worse than the Jebusites. You're worse than all of them. Now, you remember the book of Ezekiel is being written after Judah has been moved into exile in Babylon. They're in Babylon. They don't even have land anymore. And God says, you have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you. Jerusalem, I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. And so when God acts on Israel and Judah, he is sometimes for them, and he is sometimes against them, but he is always acting in the sight of the nations because his concern is always everyone. And it's so frustrating to God that his people are faithless in being a light to the nations. And it's under that guys that eventually Christ will come.
to be a light to all nations, following God's plan and God's purpose that has been articulated right from Genesis 1. Father, what a privilege it is that we too are part of that plan and that your concern is for everyone in this room and ultimately everyone outside of it. Every person bearing your image needs to know whose image they bear. And so there's an onus on us to live faithfully, as been the call in the Old Testament, as is the call in the New Testament, to be faithful uh, witnesses of your truth. And Father, secondly, to let the nations know. And even here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Father, there are probably all nations are represented, or most nations represented among us here, and you have called us to reach out. And so help us to be not merely livers of your word, those who live it out, but those who share it with others, that your name might be made great amongst all nations, knowing that when that is accomplished, your son will return. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.